Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good evening, everybody. We are continuing in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Let's pause and let's pray. Let us ask God to help us in these passages we're reading. Father, as we are here this evening, it is with a desire to hear from you, with an open heart to receive what you would have for us, and Lord, wanting to understand more clearly, Father, what you were saying to your people, your church, through this book, and in turn through us. I pray, Father, that it would be illuminating, it would be encouraging, it would be profitable, Lord, in our relationship with you, that it would help to motivate us in our worship. It would help us to see how great you really are and how awesome are your works, Father, and what you are doing. Thank you again for our time together, Lord. Bless for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in chapter 4. Up to this point, we have kind of had an introduction and some individual letters to seven different churches. We just finished those letters to the church of Laodicea, and really chapters 4 and 5 are where the book really begins to take off, and these two chapters begin to set the foundation for the rest of the book and the things that we are going to be reading. And let's start with verses 1 and 2. And it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first heard, the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once... I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, what do you think when you read about a door standing open in heaven? I usually had thought that I was down here on earth, and somewhere up in the sky, there was this door that was open far away, right? And there's this like little door that's kind of open that lets us into that area of heaven, and what heaven was was 
far away and somewhere up in the sky. I mean, that's where my mind still goes to, right? I think a door in heaven, that's kind of where my mind goes, you know. But I don't think that's true any longer. That's not at least my thought. Heaven and earth, and, and I've said this a lot over the years, and I'll keep saying it because I, I think we keep forgetting it sometimes. Um, the idea of heaven and earth in the biblical sense is not separated by a great gulf as we hear so many times in sermons, you know, that heaven is here and earth's here and there's this big gulf in between the two. Um, I don't think that's true as much as there different spheres of reality that is actually right here, that's right close and, and right beside us, intersecting with our ordinary reality in an ongoing way. And, and it's not so much like the door opening up in the sky far away. It's more like a door opening right in front of us where before we could only see this room, the cars and the parking lot. And now we see a whole lot more. We see what God is doing, and it's leading us into a different understanding of how we actually live in this world, an invitation to lift our minds up and, and to see what's going on. And coming from our background, or at least many of us, the idea of a trumpet was connected <clears throat> to Thessalonians and the idea of coming up was this idea of, you know, God is going to rapture us all uh, and take us away. And this is behind the scenes of what's going to happen in the future and the kind of things that are taking place. Again, what we're seeing, I think, in chapter four and five are not the final end of God's purposes here on earth, but an understanding of what is taking place with both these perspectives of earth and heaven and how they're fitting together. Remember, I've been talking throughout the, the book about how John is writing very directly to the followers of Christ who were alive at that time, where we are reading these things. I mean, even like last week when I talked about you're neither, you know, hot or cold, being lukewarm, how that meant something to the church there in Laodicea because of where their water sources were coming from. There's a lot of things like that in this book where because of the people, where they are and how they are seeing their world, these things are jumping out at them in a way that we probably don't grasp unless we are going back and kind of looking at things from their perspective a little bit more. And so, again, this isn't so much the final vision of God's people escaping far away, but heaven as it is at the moment in the present reality, not the end of the world, but the terrible events which are going to engulf the world and cause tremendous suffering to God's people. Again, very directly at the time that this is being written, but definitely it would be very inclusive to how it is affected so many people who followed Christ throughout history. And that could include us. The idea of persecution and where we're at today is, is kind of difficult to grasp hold of because we just really don't understand uh, persecution and what that is. Um, 
not like they did and not like many others in other countries do. And, and so this door standing open, it's similar to what we just had read in the last letter to the church of Laodicean where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And, and it's an invitation of communion, right? Come in and I will sup with them and, and you with me. It was this idea of worship and it's an invitation to worship. Worship is actually centering our lives around someone or around something. It is allowing this to be what shapes us. When we worship, we give worth to something. We give value to it. And really, all of Scripture is about centering our lives around God. In the beginning, God. And in the end, it's God. And it's, are we centering our lives around God and what his desire and his will is for us? And, and throughout Scripture, God is unveiling what his desire is for the people of Israel through Abraham and through the law and through the prophets as they start to kind of go astray. And then, of course, through Jesus. It is helping us to center our lives around God and who he is. And that's what we're being invited to do here. It's an invitation to worship. Worship is that kind of perspective. And he says, before me was a throne, and the word throne appears in almost every chapter of this book. Twice it shows up in uh, as the center of authority in a negative connotation. Uh, Satan in chapter 2 and the beast in chapter 16. And so there's the contrast of people who are centering their lives against the strife against what God is doing, enemies against what the cause of Christ is. But then there's all these other times where the idea of throne is taking place and a throne is a symbol of authority and rule, right? So when you're sitting before a throne, you're recognizing authority. You're recognizing the rule. People are gathered around the authority that it represents. And then the contrast of the throne of God and then the throne of men that we see in chapter 2 and 16, as I said. Jesus said, we cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to love one master and despise and hate the other. You're going to cling to one, despise the other. And you can't serve these two. And yet we live in a world where people pledge allegiance to many thrones, right? to many rules. And oftentimes that's where conflict arises, and that's very much the case that is taking place throughout this book as we've talked about. There is the rule of Rome that is affluent, that is powerful, that is dominating, that is growing, and then there is the rule of God and their perspective where they were seeing before they looked and saw through this door that's being open was that we are being killed, we are being discarded or forgotten, their temples are growing and are elaborate, we are hiding in homes, their belief systems are out in the marketplace, are a part of the economy, ours are having to be kept secret, 
And John is opening the door and saying, there is a throne. There is a rule and there is an authority. And I am showing it to you as this door opened. This is what I saw. Where was it? Right here. Right where you're living. It's not in the future, someday, someplace. It is happening right now. And I think that changes everything. When we stop looking at this book as a a fortune teller that's going to bring about some kind of end time hocus pocus, antichrist here, you know, false witness here and blah, 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 all these things looking, looking, looking. And boy, you go on YouTube and you can find something for everything here. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think this is helping the church at a time of persecution to see that the rule and reign of God is present and showing up right here among you. It's a very common theme throughout Scripture. It's something that has taken place throughout. It is what he is wanting them to understand. That a glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. That's Jeremiah 17, 12. Again, a glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. When? Right now. Wherever we're at, right now, the throne of God is in this door. Verse 3, he says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Again, we're coming to this very illustrative language. And remember, this book is to incite our imagination. It is to help us see things so that we can more clearly understand things. The ancient world valued stones not for decoration or for the stone itself, but usually it was for their capacity to reveal and deepen the colors of light. And so they would see a stone and how it reflected the light and gave that light a different color. That's what gave it such an interest. And so here from the beginning, we see that light is an important part of Scripture, an important part of declaration, right? In the beginning... God created the heaven and the world. The world was, you know, he created the light, separated it from the darkness. We see that there was the bow placed in the sky, a promise that God would no longer destroy the world in a flood. And it was this multicolored. It was supposed to be something that captured the imagination. Here we see the the rainbow circling the throne of God. Again, this picture of God's gracious you know, dealings with humanity, and here it is in the throne. We see that Jesus says he is the light of the world. All these things are coming out because they're helping us to see more clearly the beauty that is taking place in what he's seeing on the one who is sitting at the throne and all these things that are encircling them. I think it's there to help us connect to the God who created light, the God who has used light in so many ways. Um, in him is there is no darkness at all, right? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Worship is a precious stone that reveals 
the colors of lights all around us. It helps us to see things in a different sense. I, I always think it's interesting how when I used to lead in music and worship years ago, how I could look out and I could see sitting virtually next to each other two people and they were having a totally different experience, right? One is just tears are streaming down their face, their hands are raised, you know, they're just emotionally being moved and the other person is, you know, doodling on a piece of paper, bored, you know, looking at their phone, just totally not interested and it's like there's two different worlds going on right here in two different seats, one is multicolored. One is very, uh, it's present, and the other one is distant. One, one has stepped through the door and is now seeing the throne, and the other isn't. Even though they're in the same location, they're in different places, right? And so we see this unveiling and this beautiful description of the throne. In verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the thrones came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The 24 other thrones, I believe, and a lot of what I read, I believe, are double twelves. It stands for the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And what's happening here is it's including the old and the new prophecy fulfillment. Everything in between. God revealed himself to the nation of Israel, to Abraham, and through his children, and through Christ, and through his apostles, and has entrusted these with his message, with his rule and authority's message, right? They're thrones, and so there's weight to what they carry. There's authority to what they say. But what we see here is as this is taking place, they are here before the other throne. And so I think it's important to recognize that God has given us a story, a declaration in Scripture of what he has done and has been doing and is still doing. And these 24 other thrones, 24 elders, I believe is a declaration of what has been revealed through the nation of Israel, and through the apostles. And it's important that we take it in this figurative way because if you look at the 12 tribes, think of Judah, right? The guy was kind of a scoundrel, right? I mean, he went and slept with his daughter-in-law and she had to trick him to get his inheritance some pretty dark stuff. They, they weren't like, oh, these are mighty, noble, great people. But it represents something more. It represents what God was doing and the people he was communicating to and through. Look at the apostles. Right? They had all kinds of failures. 
but they ended up carrying this message through there. And so we see it, but it represents more than just the people. It represents what God is doing at that time and through that time through these groups of people. And I think it's important to recognize that because that helps us, again, to see things pictured correctly. It helps us to understand what John is writing and how he's writing these things. We, we see all these flashings of thunders and rubble, rumblings. Um, there are seven spirits of God that I really don't know what that means, right? I, I can't, I could make something up. Um, but I, I really think it might have to do with what God was doing in the seven churches, the seven lampstands, how God is there in the midst. Remember, the number seven has to do with uh, perfection. It's a perfect number. And so I think it is what God is perfectly doing throughout history. Uh, that would be my guess of what it is. And then also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The word sea happens, and the idea of sea happens multiple times in Scripture, but I don't think they're always meaning the same thing. There was, in Solomon's temple, a great brass, they called it a sea, that was before Solomon's temple. It was a large basin that was set for the purpose of cleansing at the entrance of the place of worship. And I think that this is the idea there, that there is a cleansing before the throne of God. This whole thing has to do with worship. What are we worshiping? Who are we worshiping? How is worshiping affecting how we're living? And so here is this glass sea, just like there was the glass sea at the temple, the, that brazen bowl where they would actually cleanse before they would go into the place of worship. The early Christians also would meet in homes, and the Roman-style homes that most of them lived in, there would also be a large basin that they would use to clean before they would go into the home. Those basins were also used where they would actually have baptisms, which I think is kind of cool because, remember, we used to have that big little horse trough kind of thing, and we used to do that, and we always think, oh, no, you got to go down to the sea to have baptized. They actually use these basins and baptize people there. And so there's definitely this understanding of worship. There has to do this understanding of maybe even a, a baptistry that's taking place or the idea of baptism. We see that idea of sea used, again, throughout the book. But here I believe it's in the context of worship and dedication. Even waters of baptism, the Red Sea was a type of baptism, remember? The Jordan River, all these ideas were symbols of what took place or is to take place in baptism. They're there to help us identify with what God has done and is doing. They're waters through which we pass, leaving an old way of life, entering a new one, dying to one and coming to life in the other. And so here before the throne, there is this sea that is just like glass. And again, the illustration, if you've ever gone to a lake and it's early in the morning and it's just like glass, it's the best time to water ski, right? You can water ski and it's just like you're cutting through butter. And it's so beautiful, the illustration. It's almost calming. And that's really what we see taking place. And so once again, there is this idea of worship that is continuing in all these illustrations. Verse 7, 
In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third like a face like a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So now we get to the fun stuff, right? Creatures with eyes. I heard one commentary saying that it represented the four Gospels, but I don't know. I I don't lean to that uh, because I don't know how prevalent the four Gospels were at the time of this writing. Um, I don't know that they had been so prevalent that he would be able to say this and everyone can connect to that. Uh, it's believed by some, and this is where I tend to lean, that the four creatures are in all aspects a represent, representation of all the creatures of the world. Just like the 24 elders represented what God had done through Israel and God had done through Christ and the apostles, the old and the new, we see the lion, the creatures that are noble. We see creatures strong like the ox, the strongest of creatures, wisdom like that of a human being, um, swift or able to fly that of eagles. And they all too are centered on God. All of creation is centered on God, looking towards God. We see that in Psalms, right? That creation declares the glory of the Lord. It's as if all of creation is doing what it's supposed to, being centered around God. The heavens declare his majesty. And so does all of life that is here on earth. Eugene Peterson writes that worship does not divide the spiritual from the natural. It coordinates it. I love that, right? Worship coordinates the spiritual and the natural and brings them together. And so here is every form of creature, and all throughout the world they are worshiping God. In other words, they are seeing him clearly. That's why there's eyes everywhere. They see the throne clearly, and what do they do? They cry, holy, holy, holy. Right? He is unique. He is separate. He is one of a kind who sits on this throne, is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And there is this declaration of God at work throughout all history, in all of humanity, in all of creation, and they are all centered around and looking at him. And I think it's a, a beautiful picture. All of creation, the Hebrew patriarchs, the Christian apostles, the wild animals, the domesticated animals, human beings, soaring birds are all around the throne. And the purpose comes from the one who sits on the throne. The one who is holy, he is holy, he is holy. It just gives you chills. It just makes you, that hurts really cold in here. Um, but it, it just, it gives you chills. It makes you just think, oh my gosh, 
How awesome is God? And, and again, we need these kinds of visualizations because our minds go so small when we start thinking about God and we start thinking about what holiness and we think about creation worshiping, we, we start segmenting things and they start coming into a smaller frame of time that we understand. But then you start seeing these vivid pictures that are just wild and it helps our imagination to begin to grab hold of who God really, really is. And when we think we know who he is, we are just giving an, ourselves an image because that image is just a reflection of who he really is because he is more than we could ever understand. So how do you describe a God that is beyond the ability to be descript, described, right? How, how do you do that? put eyes everywhere right you say animals and six wings and there's eyes under the wings and we have that picture of the angels that covered their eyes with one set of wings that flew with the other and covered their feet because god is too holy to look on in other words he's he's beyond our ability to visually grasp even mentally he's not able to be Approached, We can't even have our feet uncovered there. And so the whole picture, again, is similar to this, I believe, in referring to that idea of worship that's taking place. In verse 9, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This, I think, is very telling because what is the difference between humanity and the rest of creation? I mean, what's the difference between men and computers? Computers can play chess better than us, at least better than me. I never win. They, they can do so many things better than us. What's the difference between us and computers? What's the difference between us and animals? Right? Some people think we're just naked apes. What is the difference between humans and the rest of creation? Animals cry. I found animals laugh. Animals love. So what's the difference? What you want? Well, sure, you're asking. <laughs> what is the difference? What do you see? Well, they believe that some animals show empathy. See, I, th I think the difference is in verse 11, where it says, you are worthy. I think they don't just worship because they were created to. They are able to reflect and understand that he actually deserves worship. That we're actually able to see that God deserves this. It's not just 
we are living and worshiping, it's we recognize he deserves to be worshiped. We recognize that all things were created by him, for him, and have their being. We have an understanding. And because of that, what is our response? They fall down. They take their thrones, which is their symbol of rule, and they give it away. You see, this takes the idea of creation just even a little bit further. Oh, everyone is surrounded, centered around the throne. Everyone is recognizing all of creation. Now, they might be doing it without even knowing it, but these 24 elders, they know it, and they do it in recognition of who he is, and it is so powerful that they have to bend their knee and take what is their authority, their rule, and cast it before God. And they say, you are the one who's worthy. In other words, this authority, it belongs to you. Why? Because you're the one to receive glory and honor and power. Our rule, our reign, it means nothing. It is your glory that means something. It is your honor You are the one with true power because you created it all, including us. And by your will, this has all been created and has their being. And so the greatness of God is trying to be understood. And the closer we get to understanding it, the more humble it makes us the more thankful it makes us and the better worshipers it makes us. And that's what we see taking place here in this chapter that is starting to set the stage for the rest of the chapter. In one of the commentaries I read, N.T. Wright, he said that he and another theologian were going to be given different topics and he was given the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, the other theologian said to him, he goes, oh, the fourth chapter of Revelation, that is wonderful. You know it's better than the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation? And N.T. Wright said, no, what? He said, chapter five. And that's what we'll get to next week. <laughs> Any thoughts come to your mind in this chapter? Anything stand out? <laughs> Chilling. It is. You know, I didn't want to dissect it to such a point that we lose the point of it. Because we can do that sometimes with Scripture. Right? Where I think Michael shared that in his last talk. Where he said, you know, he used to just read a little bit. Now he's just reading through things. And it's like, if you don't do that, you miss the point so many times. And you'll focus on flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and miss the whole point of what it's pointing to. And so I I think, again, this is a beautiful chapter on what worship is and how it takes place where we are and how God is present, that that door is open. It is just us being aware of it and seeing through it. Yeah, I, I mean, there's... 
it's terrible, you know. But why is it there? Why is, is that story? Well, it's because it's what happened. It's giving a declaration. Then how can you look favorably at it? That's the beauty of it. Yeah, I mean, he gave us definitely so much that, you know, this group of people gave the law, and there was Moses and all these things. But then when we get to the 12 apostles, there is a real, not just separation because, you know, like Old and New Testament. Uh, it was a separation because we have the Hebrew people, and now we have the Gentile people. It, the promise that the, you know, sands of the sea, stars, your seed will be, it is taking place figuratively through Christ, right? It's not taking place literally because the nation is, you know, confined to these ethnicities, but the promise surpasses that and goes on to Christ and, and excels in all these things. And, but he's not negating what happened, right? He's including that into this picture, and he's saying, see, God was doing something here, and God's continuing to do something here, and here is the representation. It is all here before the throne of God. He is orchestrating something incredible. Authority is here. And then you take the Christian at that time who is again in the shadow of Rome, in the shadow of this incredible empire, so powerful, so affluent, so present that it is dominating industry. It is dominating culture. And here's this little group of people living in the shadow. And what John is trying to do is say, guys, you have to see clear. You have to see clear. And he's helping them to see that God has been working, is working, and will work, right? He was, is, and is to come. For Rome, where Rome is, and when Rome is gone, God is here, right? And if we lose sight of that, we're going to get all kinds of weird ideas when it comes to Mark of the Beast and stuff like that, right? Not buying or selling, right? Well, again, it's got to do, we're laying the passage here, the foundation. There is one who's worshipped, who's on the throne, who was, is, and is to come. There's one who's worthy who's holy, and then there's another throne, okay? And that other throne at this time was the Roman throne. Now, it represents a lot, but it really represented the economy. It represented the worship. It represented a lot of the cultural things that were taking place. Remember, in the seven churches, a lot of things were problematic because they were like these people. Right, they was like Balaam. They were like Jezebel. They were giving in to this idolatrous form of worship. Right? Why were they doing that? That was the culture. That was their way of worship. Right? They were given in. Their their gods were on their coins. Okay, Caesar was on the money. These are all parts of you know this story, and so John is with imagination helping to expose a lot of what was happening in the culture because of Rome, because of Caesar, because of their rule. And I think that we, if we keep that in mind, some of these things start to come up and be actually more powerful because they seem more connected 
to life that we're living and the life that they were living. So I ask you to keep your minds open as we go through this, right? I'm going to challenge. I've challenged my beliefs. Why not challenge yours? Um, you know, just how I see things because I don't see things like I used to. And you guys all know that. I'm not trying to be sneaky. Um, you know, I'm just sharing how I, I see things, and it just makes a whole lot more sense to me. Well, I, I think when we start saying words like test, we start making small. You know, we're making God fit a mindset that we can wrap our heads around. Yeah, again, we, we, we try to, in our human understanding, put infinite into reason. And it's always going to come up short. It's always going to fail in some level because God is bigger than what we can ever imagine, right? He's not just as big as we can imagine. He's what we can imagine and bigger. And then, then when we have humanity and we have the idea of freedom and we have the idea of life and we have the idea of progress, that life is moving. What, what's moving? What's moving, you know, these 12 tribes to the prophets, to the nations, to Christ, to, to the world that we're living in? What, what's moving that? And there's this underlying current that God is there in and through it all at work. You know, in him we live and move and have our being. Well, I mean, yeah, I, who knows how much God is doing in the rest of the universe, right? There's no way of telling, and I think it would be very arrogant to assume that we're all there is. You know, I know it makes you feel comfortable if things are simple, right? And then when they get bigger, it's like, okay, I guess I don't know. It makes you humble. Then you bow your knee and you cast your throne and say, hey, you know, I don't know. It's up to you. You know, I, I think, you know, the idea of a spiritual world, you know, we've always believed in, you know, spirits, the angels, you know, the demonic realm. We always believe that there's more than meets the eye, you know, and, and so we have a universe that's huge. What's it filled with? You know, I, I only have eyes to see the matter. What don't I see? You know, what else is going on <laughs> that we don't see? And and so, you know, it, it's just, uh, and I, I think the, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to fully know, right? The mystery is ever learning. The comfort is purpose, right? That it's not without purpose. That it's not without design. That, like he says here, you know, all things are created for your will they were created and have their being. So they're all found in you, and you are amazing, right? And so it's kind of, that's where it kind of ends here. It's like on your on your face, crowned before the God. It's like it all has to do with you, and you're amazing, you know? And then it's kind of, this is where we start. So if we have this view of God, it should shape everything, right? It should shape how we live. So what happens if this view of God starts getting overshadowed by our selfishness, our consumer mentalities, right? The, our comforts, it's all about us and what we can have to make us feel better when we're going through persecution, 
when you know we're being starved because we can't make a living because we don't want to worship these gods and work in that industry. What does this view of God do to that? It brings hope, right? It brings hope that helps those followers of Christ live through the persecution struggle with the right mindset, with a clear mindset. And it's not like, oh, God's going to make everything good for me. It's like God is amazing, and it all belongs to him, and I get to be a part of that. Any other thoughts? Let's pray. Father, there are times when we are moved with your majesty to a place where it, it does give us chills and it does make us more aware of how great, how awesome, how unfathomable you are. But Lord, truthfully, at least in my life, sometimes those are short-lived. Those moments don't last and I get blinded again by the world around me and all I see is the building, all I see is the cars, all I see is the parking lot, all I see is the hurt, all I see is the disease, all I see is the struggle. And Lord, you were trying to communicate to all of us the bigger picture. And so I pray, Lord, that this would help remind us when we do get narrow-sighted, Lord, to see and remember there is more. That you are there, you are holy, holy, holy. That you are worthy, you deserve all praise, honor, and power. And Father, that we would recognize that we are in you, that we've been created by you, Take comfort in these things, God, that it is in you that we have our being. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.